Then, like a real conversation with a real person, what do you say when you've said everything you want to say? How do you move on in a real conversation with a real person when you've said what you want to say? You listen. You let the other person speak, right? And that's called, read verse 2. And that's God speaking, isn't it? But like a real conversation with a real person, maybe that doesn't prompt a response from you. So God continues to speak in verse 3, verse 4. Then in verse 5, he says something that you want to respond to. And so you talk to him about what he's just said in verse 5. And God is willing to have that conversation with you as long as you want. But when we pray the Bible, we experience prayer for what it actually is. It actually is a real conversation with a real person. But it seems more heartfelt, more genuine. What do we normally do? When we say the same old things about the same old things, it's as though we've gotten the idea that when we talk with God, we've got to come up with everything that's going to be said. And since we don't have the time or the creative energy every time to talk about the same things in brand new ways, what do we do? We say the same old things about the same old things. And we sort of envision God up there going, all right, hurry up, let's say it again, let's go through it one more time, but hurry up, i got a universe to run here, you know. And so we imagine even God himself bored by this, because if we're bored by our own prayers, how much more would God be bored by our prayers? But when you pray the Bible, that's, you're done with that. But you don't have to think of new things to say. Who's got the time to do that or the creative energy to do that? You just go to your Bible and talk to God about what you see there. And you experience prayer for what it actually is, a real conversation with a real person. Someone else, how'd it go? I'm sorry? It flowed. You didn't have to remember things. You, you didn't run out of things to say, right? It's just like a real conversation that you've got a lot of things you want to say. It just flows. It's not, not as laborious. It's not a, just a duty, is it? It's not just duty prayer anymore, obligatory prayer. Excellent. Someone else, how'd it go? Prayed with a purpose. Purpose was in the text, right? Given some direction. And you didn't have to think it up. You didn't have to remember anything or look at notes. Bible tells us in 1 John, we must pray in accordance with His will or He will not hear us, right? Do you have any greater assurance that you're praying the will of God than when you're praying the Word of God? Now, that doesn't mean you can't pray the Word of God and pray it selfishly or wrongly. We, we can do that. But do you have any greater assurance you're praying the will of God than when you're praying from the Word of God? Very good. Someone else. How'd it go? She said, I prayed for people I never would have prayed for. I'm going to ask you to raise your hands on something, but don't worry. I'm not going to call on anybody, but just to make a point. How many of you prayed about some things you normally wouldn't pray for? Can I see your hands? Yeah, it's a great majority of people. You pray the Bible, you'll pray about things that wouldn't be you wouldn't pray for if you had a prayer list as big as the Dallas phone directory. It just never would cross your mind. But it's on God's heart. 
I was doing this again once in California, gave people a chance to try this. <coughs> it was like tonight, they, they went home, came back Saturday morning, and someone told me on Saturday morning, she said, in that prayer exercise, which just like you had, seven minutes, said, as I was praying, a friend of mine from New York came to mind. She said, I moved from New York, California, 10 years ago, and I've had no contact with this friend. She hasn't called me, she hasn't texted me, she hasn't emailed me, no contact for 10 years. But she came to mind while I was praying, and I prayed for her. And I got home last night, and she called me. It was 1 a.m. in New York. She called me. God will prompt you like that when you're praying His Word. In the sense that you'll pray about things you would never think to pray about. Let me ask you to raise your hands again, though. How many of you have prayed about most of the same things, many of the same things you normally do pray about every day? Can I see your hand? Yeah. Those things will come oozing out of every passage. You can open up to basically any chapter of the Bible, and when you start praying, you'll pray about the things you pray about every day because that's your life. They'll come oozing out of every chapter, but you'll pray differently about them every day. So you'll still pray about the things you want to pray about, the most important things in your life, but you'll pray differently, but you won't have to think of ways to make them different. Excellent. Someone else. How'd it go? All right, she was prompted to pray about some things that she, her flesh wouldn't want to pray about. God perhaps can convict you about some things when you're praying the Bible. He can guide you about that. He can teach you through the Bible when you're praying. That doesn't happen when you make up your own prayers. You know, it's very unlikely you're going to get biblical teaching when you make up your own prayers and just say the same old things. It's very unlikely you're going to be convicted as often or directed or prompted when you just say the same old things about the same old things, things that you make up. When you bring the Word of God, the living and active Word of God into your prayer, it makes a big difference. That sense of the supernatural is there more. Very good. Someone else. How'd it go? Praised God more, right? It's a more God-centered way of praying, isn't it? It's not just, Lord, here I am again to ask you to do for me the things that I want. It's more God-centered. You'll still pray about the same old things, but in a more God-centered way. And that's good, isn't it? So we pray less selfishly, less flippantly, a more God-centered way, even though we pray about the things we want to pray about on a regular basis. Very good. Someone else? Went by very quickly. It might be embarrassing to, to ask, when was the last time you prayed for seven unbroken minutes? All right? But you could have prayed longer, couldn't you? Easily. And think about it. Here we are the tiredest time of the week. Late on Friday night. You prayed seven minutes without any problem and you could have kept going. If it'll work on a Friday night, it'll work anytime. And it was easy, right? You didn't labor through it. It was easy. Someone else. All right, much more merciful, more from God's perspective, more, more sympathy involved in that. 
not only do we pray different words, and that alone is worth it, right? That alone is worth a Friday night of your life, wasn't it? No longer do you have to pray the same words anymore. You have new words to pray about similar things. But folks, it's better than that. If that's all it was, that'd be worth it. It's better than that. Because the words we're praying when we pray the Bible aren't just different words. These words have a supernatural power to them. We're praying inspired words when we pray the Bible. Jesus said, the words that I speak to you are spirit. They are life. These are the words we're praying, not merely different words. When you pray words of the supernatural quality, it it transforms the way you pray for things. Anyone else? He said he prayed for something, had the prayer answered in the very next verse. Wow, that's like a real conversation with a real person, isn't it? Well, I'd love to hear from everybody, but but our, our time moves very quickly. So let me let me say this. If you ever teach this to anyone else, and I hope that you do, I, I, I'm burdened to pray that every Christian on the planet will learn how to pray the Bible. I think it's that fundamental. If you ever teach this to anyone else, and I hope you do, there's two things you must do. First and most importantly, give them a chance to try it right then. Not next week's class. They may not be here next week's class. Not tomorrow. They may not be here tomorrow. That's why I pled with people, please stay for the first 10 minutes after the break, if at all possible. It's the most important time. Because once you've done it, which you now have, you don't need any notes to remember how to do it again, do you? It's like riding a bicycle. Once you've actually done it, you've got it. You don't need any notes to remember how to do it. All you need is you and your Bible. So give them a chance right then. Not next time, but right then. See, if I hadn't given you that seven minutes to pray, some of you would have walked out tonight going, that's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. That's a real good idea. I'll have to try that. Someday. That's right. Someday. And you never would. Right? But because of that seven minutes, some of you are hooked. Some of you will never again say the same old things about the same old things because of that seven minutes. If you teach this, you may not have had a couple hours as I've had tonight to do this. You may only have 30 minutes, but give them time to pray. I had to do this once with junior high kids. I had five minutes. I gave them 30 seconds to pray. Let them actually try it right then. The other thing you should do if you have them, if you teach someone, give some time for feedback like we've been doing the last few minutes. You know how many things you said that surprised me? Zero. You know how many things you said that I've never heard before? One of these, zero. I knew everything you were going to say. If you don't believe me, look in chapter 8 of the book. Chapter 7 of the book said this is the most important chapter in the book. It's only two pages. I want you to put the book down now, and I want you to pray seven minutes through a song. You turn the page, and it says, did you do it, or are you still reading this book? I'm serious. Put the book down and pray. You're reading this book to learn how to pray, right? Pray better. So put the stinking book down and pray seven minutes through a song. Then the next chapter is, when I teach on this, Here are the things that people say they experienced. And everything you've said is in that chapter 8. But it's more interesting when you say it than for me to just keep talking. Because each one of you who spoke 
You should have seen other people nodding when you spoke. Yeah, that was my experience. So there's a freshness and excitement in the testimonies of people fresh off the experience than for me to just keep talking about it. Well, what have we learned here tonight? We said that when we pray, we tend to say the same old things about the same old things. So let's refer to this prayer request that you pray every time. Let's say, Lord, bless my family. And we come at it the same old gray colorless ways we always do. But now instead of bless my family, you pray, Lord, shepherd my family. Why? Because you're praying through the 23rd Psalm. And that shepherding imagery just transforms everything. Do you see it's still pretty much the same prayer? Bless my family, shepherd my family. But there's something about the supernatural power of the Word of God and that different imagery that just transforms that prayer. The next day you might be praying that, that uh, uh, they would manifest 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love because that's the passage you're praying through. The next day you may pray your family would become meditators on the Word of God because you're praying from Psalm 1. Isn't that a wonderful thing to pray for someone? But would you ever in your life pray that for someone if you weren't praying through Psalm 1? The next day you might pray that they'd manifest the fruit of the Spirit. The next day you might pray they'd sense the presence of God wherever they go. Do you see though really it's the same prayer, bless my family? But when you pray, bless my family, through a different passage, it comes out a different prayer. Every class at the seminary, we open it with scripture reading and prayer. But basically, it's the same prayer. Lord, please bless the class. How many ways can you think of to say, bless the class, when you say it several times a day, every day? But what I do is teach my students, the very first thing I teach when I walk in the classroom on the first day is I teach them the Psalms of the day. And thereafter, every day, the last person into the classroom has the privilege of telling all the rest of us what the Psalms of the day are. And that accomplishes two things. Number one, it teaches them the Psalms of the day. And second, gets them to class on time. Nobody wants to have to be the guy to stand up and tell us what the Psalms of the day are, right? So they tell me what the Psalms of the day are. I pick one of those, and I pray God's blessing on the class through one of those Psalms. So if it's the 23rd Psalm, Lord, shepherd us in this class today. If it's Psalm 51, Lord, forgive us for not always applying our minds to our studies every day. Help us to do that today. If it's Psalm 139, Lord, we acknowledge your presence here in Norton 195. You're the teacher in this classroom. Please teach us today. Do you see how it's still the same prayer, bless the class? But when I pray bless the class through a different psalm, it comes out a different prayer. But I didn't need notes. I didn't have to think of anything. I just pray what I see there in the text. And that's so easy. Anybody can do that. So you never again say the same old things about the same old things. Just by praying through a different passage. Well, how do you do this with a group? Well, I really don't have time to tell you. Uh, but you do have a handout there, right? You've got a handout and your packet, two pages on this. And so basically, if you want to put notes there, just put good, better, and best by those three notes. This can be your family. This can be a small group. This can be even a church-wide prayer meeting. So the first one basically just assigns a verse to everybody. You take the first verse, you take the second verse, you take the third verse, you take the fourth verse. Okay, let's pray. And everything's going fine. We get to her verse, and her verse is, Lord, dash your children's heads against the rock, smash their teeth and mouth. You go, I don't even know what that means. Well, I don't know what. So 
you know, it, it, she can just or just have a brain cramp, you know, in a familiar verse, and just, so it can work or it can backfire. Perhaps the best way is just the last one there, just pick and choose. If you're the prayer leader, just pick and choose from the passage phrases there conducive to prayer and just throw them out one at a time as needed. So if, if you were my prayer group and I was leading the group, I'd say, all right, we've taken prayer requests, let's say, and, and we pray and I call out something like the Lord is my shepherd. And different people are motivated to pray beginning with that phrase, Lord, please shepherd Joe to find a new job. Lord, please shepherd Mary as she has cancer surgery tomorrow. Lord, please shepherd our church in this decision. Please shepherd this family as they move. And then when it's quiet, I throw out another phrase, like I shall not want. Lord, Joe's going to be in want if he doesn't get a job. Lord, Mary doesn't have any kind of insurance. She's going to be in want if you don't provide. And then when it's quiet, I throw out another phrase. And I, I don't throw out difficult phrases that people wouldn't understand, like, Lord, dash your children's heads against the rock. And so I just skip over those completely. I just pick and choose phrases in there that just about everybody can understand. And everybody could think of something to pray for. I find that more people pray when I do that. I find that the prayers are shorter, more biblical, more to the point, And it's just an overall better better experience. I have my students read the biography of George Mueller. We discussed him in class on Tuesday. Considered by many the greatest man of prayer and faith in the history of the church. <clears throat> he lived almost the entirety of the 1800s in Bristol, England. And this is a man with over 50,000 specific recorded answers to prayers in his journals. Over 30,000 of which... He said, were answered the same day or same hour that he prayed them. I did the math one time. That's like five or six every day for, you know, something like 50 years or something. If I had five or six specific prayers answered in one week, that'd be the greatest week of my life. This was every day for half a century. It's, it's like reading another chapter in the book of Acts. In a time in Dickensian England when uh, there was a great amount of of a number of orphans. Uh, there's a lot of just terrible disease in the cities. Working and living conditions were awful. OSHA wasn't very uh, influential in those days. And as a result, there were a lot of orphans. And so if you're seven years old and you have no relative and you're thrown out on the streets, what are you going to do to survive? You're, you're going to steal. You're going to live by your witch. You're going to be Oliver Twist. That's what you're going to be. And because of that, there were more children. When George Mueller started an orphanage, there were almost none in England. And there were more children under age seven in prison than in orphanages. Under age seven in prison. I mean, they had to stop. You know, these kids are stealing. They're causing havoc. Where were we going to put them? There's no place to put them. Put them in prison. But he started an orphanage, and over time, he grew them to the point where he had over 2,000 children at a time, over 10,000. In his lifetime, he fed them, clothed them, housed them, educated them. Over 50,000 specific answers to prayer. Over, God funneled over half a billion dollars in today's money through his hands. He never made his needs known to anyone except to God in prayer. And by implication, in his annual reports. Anyone who donated to the ministry, anyone who asked for it could get an annual report. And it'd say things like, on June 18th last year, we had no money to feed the orphans. We prayed, here's our God provided. 
on October 21st, we had no money to pay the staff. We prayed and he said, God provided. So people knew the ministry existed by voluntary gifts. He just didn't ask for them. And God did amazing things. Well, George Mueller said that for the first 10 years into this life of faith, not when he's a nobody, he's already famous around the world. He had four internationally known ministries in his day. Today, he's famous only for his orphanage, but he's already known around the world, the great men of prayer and faith who praise and God provides. For 10 years, he said, it was his habit after getting dressed in the morning to pray until breakfast. And sometimes it took him 30 minutes to an hour before he said he got into the spirit of prayer. We might say before he felt like praying. And then that 30 minutes to an hour, he would try to pray. And he would try to pray. And his mind would wander and his heart would be cold. But he'd keep at it. He'd keep at it until finally, 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 okay, he felt like praying. And only then he said, did I really begin to pray? What do we do? Five minutes, seven minutes. Our minds are wandering half the time, right? Our minds wander half the time. We suddenly come to ourselves and say, no, wait a minute, where was I? I haven't been thinking about God for the last several minutes. And we come back to that mental script in our head that we've repeated so many times, but almost immediately our mind begins to wander in another direction because we have repeated it so many times. But he would stay with it until he felt like praying. And only then did he start. He'd pray really at that point. And he said that's the way it was for 10 years into this great life of prayer and faith until he made one slight alteration in his prayer life. And what do you think it was? Yeah, what you just did. He started praying the Bible. He said, after that, I scarcely ever suffered as I did before. And then a supporter of his, he wrote to so many of us in pastoral ministry, the British Baptist preacher in London of the 1800s, Charles Spurgeon, said somewhere, we ought to pray when we feel like it. Well, I've spent all evening saying we don't pray because we don't feel like it, right? But Spurgeon said, we ought to pray when we feel like it because it'd be terrible to miss such an opportunity. But he went on to say, and we ought to pray when we don't feel like it because it'd be terrible to remain in such a condition. Why can't I think of cool things like that? The reality is, let's say you get up at 7 o'clock in the morning, you go to pray, you don't feel like praying, your heart is cold, cheer up, you're normal. You know why you don't feel like praying? You're sleepy. You've been dead to the world for the last six or seven hours, right? We don't wake up with our hearts instantly on fire for the things of God. I run into door frames when I get up in the morning. But the reality is we are not subject to those feelings. God said to Jeremiah, is not my word like a hammer and a fire? Is not my word like a hammer that breaks hard hearts? It's like a fire that melts cold hearts. God says his word is like a fire. You wake up, your heart is cold as ice. Cheer up, you're normal. But you are not subject to those feelings. You can take the fire of God's word and plunge it into your cold heart so that by 7.02, just like by 8.38 tonight, you begin to feel like praying. Well, 
as a close, look at Acts chapter 4 while I tell you about these other two. And having done this almost every day of my life, since the 1st of March, 1985, I can testify to you there's nothing in all my devotional life that more quickly and consistently kindles my consistently cold heart like praying the Bible. I almost never feel like praying when I get up or when I go to pray, whenever it is. But I can take the fire of God's Word and plunge it into my cold heart and the Word does its work. On the cross, Jesus said seven brief things, as you know. Brief because he had been beaten nearly to death. Brief because he was so thoroughly dehydrated. And brief because his entire body weight is sagging on those three spikes. So in order to get get enough breath in his diaphragm to speak, he had to push up on that spike in his feet. And it was so excruciating that they would speak just very briefly and then sink back down. And to hasten death, the Romans would break the legs of their victims. They couldn't push up and breathe anymore, and they would asphyxiate on the cross. So that would hasten death. And so they did that to the two thieves, and they came to Jesus to do it and realized he was already dead. But the longest of the seven brief things Jesus said was, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? which is the first verse of Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 is prophetic about what? The crucifixion. There are more details in Psalm 22 about the physical aspects of crucifixion than all four Gospels put together. Two of the four Gospels simply say they took him and crucified him, period, and went on. Nearly everything in the Gospels about the crucifixion is what the Romans are doing what the Jews were doing, what the disciples were doing, what was going on in the atmosphere, what's going on in the temple being rent, temple veil being rent in two and so forth. There's very little in the Gospels about the physical aspects of crucifixion, but Psalm 22 is full of them. One place it says, my tongue cleaves to my jaws. Jesus indeed said, I thirst. I, I can count all my bones, he says in Psalm 22. Well, the Romans would crucify their victims unclothed. There are two multi-sentence statements in Psalm 22 about the crucifixion that his enemies repeated verbatim in the gospel. I am convinced Jesus was praying through Psalm 22 on the cross. Now, to some degree, that's speculation. But we know this. We know he prayed the first verse. We know why he spoke briefly. And because he was literally, literally fulfilling Psalm 22 at that moment, I believe it's reasonable to conclude that when he sank back down, he continued to pray all the way through Psalm 22. Another reason to believe that is because the, next, the very last thing he said was, Into your hands I commit my spirit. From Psalm 31. Many believe when he was crucified, he began praying through the Psalms. In the afternoon, he got to Psalm 22, and he was at Psalm 31 when he died. But what's the point of all that? Jesus prayed the Psalms. Then Acts chapter 4, verse 23, 
<clears throat> Peter and John had been arrested. They'd been threatened. When they were released, they went to their friends. They went back to the church and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. There are many scholars who believe that is a quotation. And it's from Psalm 146. Whether it is or not, go on. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The second half of verse 25, all of verse 26 says from where? Psalm 2. And this is the place that said after they prayed, the place was shaken. What's the point? The early church prayed the psalm. George Mueller, the greatest man of prayer and faith since the early church, prayed the Psalms. Jesus prayed the Psalms. Why not you? So easy. Now, God willing, at 9 o'clock in the morning, we're going to look at the most important personal spiritual discipline. You know, I said with the two most important, there's an almost universal problem. With prayer, the almost universal problem is we tend to say the same old things about what? Same old things. And that's boring. When prayer is boring, you don't, you don't feel like praying, do you? If you don't feel like praying, then you don't, you don't pray. Simple, permanent, biblical solution to that. When you pray, pray the Bible. With the most important personal spiritual discipline, there's also an almost universal problem. And it's true even among our most devoted daily Bible readers. And it looks like this. You take your Bible, you read a chapter. Maybe you read three chapters, ten chapters. But you close your Bible. And most days, as soon as you close your Bible, if pressed, you would have to admit what? Everybody said it, right? I don't remember what I read. I forget it. I can't remember a thing I read. And what do we do? We think, well, I guess it's just me. It's just something wrong with me. I never had a great memory. I'm losing the memory I did have. I never had a good education. Never had a high IQ. That's why I can't remember what I read in the Bible. All those things may be true, but that is not why you don't remember what you read in the Bible. And there's a simple, permanent, biblical solution to that. It's as easy as the one you learned tonight. And that's what we're going to talk about at 9 o'clock in the morning. God willing. 